take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 37. Hear now the word of the Lord. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this glorious morning in which we can gather as your people, in which we can gather and set our hearts' affections upon your Son, in which we can gather and hear from the truths of your Word, in which we can gather and hear the very promises of Christ. Father, we thank you for this passage and the glories therein. We thank you that Christ has promised that he will lose nothing of all that you have given him. God, I pray that as we peer into these truths today, that you would comfort our hearts. That for those of us who trust and believe upon Christ, that the sureness of our salvation would be sealed upon our hearts and minds this day. And Father, for those who do not trust and believe upon Christ, Father, that they would be disturbed in their soul this morning that they would see their predicament before you and that they would flee to Christ to the only hope in life and death. So, Father, thank you. We pray that you come, that you move among your people this morning, that your spirit would work in power through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. Well, it seems like there is a lot going on in our body, as you just heard, as Paul ran through many of those uh, particular issues in his prayer. Many of our brothers and sisters have been facing some pretty serious medical issues or have loved ones who are or have even lost loved ones. Some of those issues have been published and prayed for, but there's actually a lot more going on uh, that hasn't been published, that people have kept to themselves. So I would ask you to be praying for our body. I would encourage you to be praying, especially that God would continue to sustain faith and hope and joy in the midst of suffering, conforming His people to the image of Christ through their circumstances, making them more like His Son. We ought to pray for mercy, we ought to pray for healing, absolutely, but above all, I would encourage you to, prepare, to pray for sustaining grace in the lives of those who are facing trial. But in light of that, because of everything that is going on, I think the text that we're looking at today is actually very timely. And the reason being is because there are a few passages in, in all of Scripture that touch on the heart of assurance like this one does. And if there's anything that you need when you are facing 
trials of various kinds, it is that you are assured in the promises of God in your life. To know that His promises are for you. To know that you have been saved. To know that you are, in fact, one of His. And the truth is, we all need to know that. We all need to have that kind of assurance, whether we're facing a severe trial or not. And in fact, you do not want to get to the point where you are in a trial without having settled that. You want to know that going into whatever you will face in life. And so my my question to you this morning at the outset of this sermon is, do you have assurance? Do you know that you are His? You are not promised tomorrow If you found yourself standing before Almighty God today, this day, do you know that you are His? Do you know that Christ is yours? Maybe we should back up and just ask the question, can anyone know that for sure? Or is that presumption? Is assurance, true assurance, actual assurance, even attainable? And if so, on, on what basis? When we started this section, this bread of life discourse, I made the comment that herein lies a passage of Scripture that is both very tragic and very sobering when the results of it all are seen and understood with regard to the the shocking and persistent unbelief of the people in the face of Jesus Christ. However, I also said that in spite of that, that there is here contained in this discourse, in the words of Jesus, some of the most glorious truths in all of the Bible. And we are going to see just how true that is today. Today, Jesus is going to pull back the curtain, so to speak, and reveal to this people and to us the inner workings of God in His plan of redemption. And here we discover just how intimately involved God, the God of the universe, is with every aspect of salvation. You know, some people kind of have a a deistic view of salvation. Deism is the view that God, when God established the laws of this universe and this world at creation, that He set it on its course and He just backed away. He's uninvolved. It's just doing what He wound it up to do. Well, in like manner, some have that kind of view when it comes to salvation. Yes, God opened the door of salvation through Jesus Christ, but He's utterly not involved now. He is just sitting back to see how this thing works out. He's just sitting back to see and wait who will come. As we will see today, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. From the beginning to the end, God is working out His plan of redemption. He is intimately involved in every single aspect. In fact, this section is just dripping with the doctrines of grace, with the sovereignty of God in salvation. And to understand that, to truly understand God's plan of redemption is to understand that one can absolutely have assurance because of what God has done. One can know that the promises of God in Christ are 
for them and can walk in the assurance of their faith. As we look at this passage, we're going to see Jesus reveal three components of redemption that all contribute to the assurance that we have in Christ. The plan of the Father, the purpose of the Son, and the requirement of man. And as we will see, undergirding all three of those is the rock-solid will of God. All three of these components, including the last one, are designed by God to achieve His redemptive purposes without fail to all who believe. And the truth is, when you understand redemption rightly, when you truly grasp what God has done, assurance is, assurance is not a problem. It's just not a problem at all. You can know. So if there's anything I want you to take away from this passage and from this message today, it is an overwhelming comfort in your salvation, in what God has done for you in Christ if you believe upon Him. Or, if that's not you, what I hope you take away from this message is a disturbance in your soul because you do not know, because you know the opposite. I hope everyone understands with clarity which camp they fall in as we look at this passage. So let's look at this, starting with the plan of the Father. Look at verse 37 with me. Jesus says this. He says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. What a, what a beautiful verse. There's so much in this verse that in reality we could have probably just camped out here for an entire sermon. And in fact, many good preachers have. Spurgeon preached an entire sermon on this one text, and he titled that sermon on this one verse, The Sum and Substance of All of Theology. That's a, that's a bold title for a singular verse. But I don't think it was a mistake to do, do so. As, as Spurgeon said in his introduction, most men speak many words and say very little. But Christ speaks few words, and he says very much. And that is absolutely the case here. Now, this would be a good verse to put to memory, because every word here matters and is loaded with massive theological implications behind it. In fact, I would say that actually the truth of three out of the five doctrines of grace are right here directly implied in this one verse, this one sentence. We're going to see that. But before we examine these words and see that, we need to remember the context in which they were stated. Context matters. Because they were stated in the midst of a situation that would seemingly be contributing or be communicating the opposite of what is said. Remember, Jesus is addressing a crowd of people who have been very zealous about who He is and about what He can do. They have been following Him around through His Galilean ministry. They have seen Him casting out demons and performing miracles. They've, they've heard His teaching. At the beginning of this chapter, they had chased Him all the way around the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus, com with compassion, miraculously fed this crowd of, of up to 20,000. The 5,000 were just the count of the men. They were ready to make him their king, and then they chased him back around to the other side to find him again. 
This crowd is after Christ. But then when Jesus began this address, this discourse that we're presently working through, he began it with a rebuke, calling out their true motives. See, they weren't following him for who he truly is. They weren't seeking forgiveness and eternal life. They were seeking after what he could do for them temporally, to provide them with their temporary and fleshly desires. Look what he said back in verse 26. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, not because you saw these signs that point to who I really am, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. That's why they were after him. You see, the truth is, Jesus, being God in the flesh, does not merely look on the outside, but he knows the heart. And John, the apostle, the writer, has been demonstrating that over and over and over throughout this gospel. While this crowd, from all outward appearances, appeared to be a group of very zealous believers and followers of Christ, they were, in fact, not at all. They were driven by fleshly motivations. They wanted to eat. But as we continue to work through this, we saw that Christ just continued to exhort them to be after true bread, not the temporary bread, but the true bread that leads to eternal life, which, of course, was himself. He explained who he was and what he can provide, which had already been demonstrated in the feeding of the 5,000. But their impenitent hearts just continued in unbelief. So much so that after everything they had seen and heard, they issued him a public challenge in verse 30. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? See and believe. Remember, they said this after having seen everything in the Galilean ministry, including the feeding of the 5,000. But I want you to take note I want you to again to pay attention to Jesus' response that comes right before our passage today. Look at verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. You see, Jesus, he came back on their public challenge using the exact same language. You say you want to see and believe. Your problem is not that you have not seen. You have seen, but you do not believe. In fact, you have seen it all. In fact, no one in history had more exposure and proximity to the teachings and works of Christ than did the Galileans. The majority of Christ's ministry was spent in Galilee among them. They had seen and heard it all. They personally experienced His creative power. They even tasted of it. And yet they did not believe. Their unbelief in particular is absolutely shocking. And it's demonstrating not just their problem, but it is demonstrating the spiritual deadness of the human heart in general. Now this could easily lead one to think, well, then God's purposes must have failed, right? The ministry of Christ is not working. If the Galileans could not believe, having seen everything that they had seen, then who will believe? 
No group has seen more than this. Who is going to believe if they don't? They've heard truth directly from the mouth of Christ. No one's had a better preacher. Who will believe if they don't? That is the context in which Jesus makes this statement of verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. See, Jesus is not surprised nor deterred by their unbelief. Rather, with calm confidence, he openly states the truth. And the truth is that there are some whom the Father has given to the Son, and those who have been given will come. The audience present could not miss the obvious implication that was just stated, if they, if they thought about it even for a second. And the implication is they do not believe, and if they continue in their unbelief, it is because they are not among those the Father has given to the Son. See, the truth is, salvation begins with the plan of the Father. And it begins in eternity past. The only way to understand this, the only way to make sense of Jesus' words here, is to see them in the light of the doctrine of election. Because the clear implication here is that God has authority over all of humanity. And He has chosen some in order to have mercy upon them and display the riches of His grace, which is the absolute first order of redemption. Now, this is why it's for this reason that when the Apostle Paul opens the book of Ephesians, praising God for His redemptive blessings in salvation, he starts here in eternity past with the plan of the Father. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. You see, Jesus is not surprised nor shaken by their unbelief for that very reason. Because from, from before the foundation of the world, God chose a people out of the mass of humanity, fallen humanity, upon whom He would lavish His grace and mercy. But it's not that God just chose them. He also gave them to His Son. He chose them for a purpose, to give to His Son. Now when Jesus says, all here, all that the Father has given me, He, he speaks of all of God's elect corporately as a group, the corporate people who are set apart for the salvation that were given to the Son as His people from before the foundation of the world. You see, before Jesus ever even came, He already had a people. Jesus had a predetermined people before the incarnation ever happened. Now, this is why the angel Gabriel, when he met with Joseph to announce the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said 
to Joseph in Matthew 121, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's not a reference to the Jews. That is a reference to those who belong to him. That is a reference to those that the Father gave to the Son. Those who were chosen by grace from before the foundation of the world. Before Jesus ever came, he already had a people. And he came for that people. To enter into covenant, an eternal covenant, with that people. That is, that is why the church, corporately, made up of Jews and Gentiles, is called the Bride of Christ. Because we are His covenant people, chosen from before the foundation of the world by the Father and given to the Son. And Jesus knows exactly for whom He has come. He knows His own. And so His confidence in His mission is absolutely unmoved by the unbelief of this crowd before him because he knows that the Father's plan will not fail. That's why he, he states this in the manner in which he does. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. There's no room for it not happening there. In other words, there's, there is no chance that those whom the Father has given to Christ will not come. There is no chance that those who have been chosen by grace from before the foundation of the world will not come to Christ, will not believe upon Christ. They will. Every single one of them, all of them will infallibly come to Christ. Now, just a reminder, when Jesus uses the word come here, he's using that interchangeably with the word believe. Uh, we saw that back in, in verse 35. L look at again how he says that there. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's, those two statements are communicating the same idea. They're parallel on purpose. To come to Jesus is to believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to come to Jesus. And what that means, what Jesus is saying here in verse 37, is those whom the Father has given to the Son will infallibly believe upon Him. Their belief in Christ is a sure and guaranteed thing, guaranteed from before the foundation of the world. Here implied is not only the doctrine of election, but also the doctrine of irresistible grace. The doctrine that says that all of those who receive the grace of God in Christ, the effectual and internal call of God upon the heart, will infallibly come to Christ. They will, by grace, display saving faith at God's appointed time in their life. Now, Jesus is going to explain more of that and how that works out down in verse 44 and 45. We're going to look at that next week, so I will save that for next week. But suffice it to say here that there is a clear causal connection between the giving of the Father and the coming of His people. The fact is, all true believers from every age, everyone who has ever truly believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ has done so because they were first given by the Father to the Son. Now many in the, the Westland and Arminian camps want to try to avoid this clear and obvious implication of this text. 
And they, they do so by saying, well, yeah, the, the Father gives to the Son those who, who believe upon Jesus. Anyone who comes to the Son is then given to the Son. But that is, that is to butcher this text and butcher what Jesus said and actually to flip it on its head. It, it, it is to reverse the order and it, it is actually to make God dependent upon man. And notice the order of events. Jesus does not say that those who come to Him or those who believe in Him, the Father will then give to the Son. Not, not at all. He says the opposite. He says, those whom the Father gives will come. There's chronology there on purpose. So the Father has designed this in such a way that everyone He has chosen by grace will infallibly come to Jesus. And they will remain in Jesus. Look at what He says. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, if you have an ESV, it says, whoever comes to me. That's, that's not the best translation. It literally reads, the one who comes to me, which is where most translations go. The reason that is important is because Jesus has switched. He's moved from speaking of the corporate mass of chosen people, now to speaking of the individual he personalizes it. The one who comes to me, I will never cast out. It's emphatic. It's one of the strongest negations in Greek. I will never cast them out. It will never happen to not even one. You see, to, to come to Christ, to, to believe upon Christ, is to be in Christ. It is to be a part of the body of Christ. It is the Father's plan that those He has given will come. And to come is to be in. It is to be in Christ. And Christ is saying that He will not remove them. He will not remove anyone from His people, anyone who comes to Him. He will not remove one from His body. To do so for Him would be to act contrary to the Father's will, to the Father's plan of redemption. In fact, this is actually a figure of speech that is meant to communicate the truth of the opposite. Uh, not, what Jesus is actually saying here is not only will he not cast them out, but he will actively keep them in. And that will become more clear as we progress. But here in these words, in, in this one verse, lies another doctrine of the great doctrines of grace, the perseverance of the saints. The doctrine that says those who have come to Christ will endure in Christ by grace. They will not fall away. He will keep them to the end. Now you could see why Spurgeon could preach on this singular text and title it the sum and summation or the sum and substance of all of theology. There's so much glory here in just this singular verse. But Jesus is not done and to end here, in my estimation, is to miss the full glory of where this is heading. So he's laid out the Father's plan, but now he's going to get explicit about his own purpose and why he's come down. Look, look back at what he says. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing 
of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus now being even more explicit to this crowd. Speaking in the first person, he says, I have come down from heaven. This is a direct claim to deity. In other words, I'm not, I'm not from here. I'm different than you. I do not originate from here. I, I have come here, but I have come here from heaven. I have come here from above. I came down to where you are. No man could say that except Christ and Christ alone. He is the only man who has originated from above. His people will follow him to above, but none of us originate from above. We originate from below, and he came down for a purpose. And his purpose, broadly speaking, is defined as executing the Father's will. Now, this is, this is language that we are starting to see patterned throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus came to exact, to carry out the Father's will. That's why he is here. But for clarity, when he says he has come not to do his own will, but to do the Father's will, that is not to say that in any way that he is acting contrary to his own will, or to say that he and the Father have a different will. No, it was the will of Christ to carry out the will of the Father. Their will is the same. The Father and the Son act in such harmony that their will is essentially one. But what Jesus is doing here by making this clarification is grounding His work and grounding the plan of redemption in the will of the Father. That's where it, that's where it originates. Because much like the Pharisees in John 5, these people were attempting to pit what Jesus was doing against what God was doing. Remember, they, they challenged Him from Scripture. They were casting shade on His miraculous feeding by comparing it to biblical history when God rained down manna from heaven. Surely you can outperform Moses if you are who you say you are. And just like what Jesus said back in chapter 5, he makes it clear that everything he's doing is the Father's will. Remember, he said, my Father is working until now, and I am working. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And here he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You cannot pit Christ against the Father. They work in harmony. What you see Christ doing is what the Father is doing. This is actually how Christ is revealing the Father to the world. Sadly, the truth is this actually still happens today. Have you ever heard anyone try to pit the God of the Old Testament against the, the Christ of the New? They are simply displaying a profound amount of ignorance and showing that they don't understand either. It is it's just a display of unbelief to do that. Because the God of the old and the Christ of the new are one. They are the same. Or another common error that people make is to assume that the, the, the gracious Christ stepped between us and the wrathful Father. Wrong. Now Christ did satisfy the wrath of God, absolutely. But He did so according to the Father's gracious plan. 
1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. How? And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus didn't come here contrary to the Father's will to step in between an angry Father and a sinful people. Not at all. No, He came down because He was sent by a loving Father whose plan it was to satisfy His own justice for an unworthy and guilty people by sacrificing the one He loved, His only Son, the one who willingly laid down His life to carry out the Father's will. You see, your your salvation is a triune endeavor. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, which we will see the Spirit's part at the end of this discourse, but they're all working in concert to save a people for himself. When you look at the saving work of Christ, when you think of the saving work of Christ, you need to understand that it was rooted in and grounded in God's loving plan, the loving plan of the Father from before the foundation of the world. The grace and mercy that you see in Christ is a revelation of the grace and mercy of God. The grace of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the grace of the Holy Spirit are all one working towards our salvation. And you see that clearly here in in verse 39. Look again at what he says. And this is the will of Him who sent me. Who is that? Who's the one who sent Him? The Father. This is the will of the Father that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up. On the last day. Brothers and sisters, if those words don't bring joy and comfort to your heart, there is something wrong with you. There is something amiss in your soul. From the beginning, from before the world was created, from before you were ever born, the Father has willed that not a single one of His people, those whom He has chosen by grace and given to the Son, will be lost. Not one. Not one. This verse right here is why I didn't want to stop at verse 37. No offense to Mr. Spurgeon. But if you stop at 37, you don't get the complete picture. There are many and can and does look at the end of verse 37 and say, yeah, He won't cast you out, but you can walk out. That's precisely what they hold to, and that's their language. And because of that, they actually have no true assurance of salvation. Their assurance is rooted in their own power, their own ability to keep themselves in and to keep believing. They don't know for sure that they will make it to the end. They don't know if they will wake up a believer tomorrow, because at any time they could walk away. They could stop believing. But that's not what Christ means in verse 37, and He makes that really clear in verse 39. No, the Father's will is that he should lose nothing of all that he has given him. And Christ's very purpose for coming, his very purpose for dying, his very purpose for rising again was to ensure that this would absolutely be the case. That is why I I believe actually limited atonement is implied in these verses as well. Because Christ came for a particular people. From heaven he came and sought her. He came and sought His holy bride. He died for His bride. See Ephesians 5. 
But this means that if, if one of all of those that the Father has given to the Son, if one falls away eternally, then his mission was a failure, and the Father's will did not come to pass. So then, Logan, what are you saying? Are you, are you saying that no one can walk away? Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because that's exactly what the Bible teaches. When one is born again, they can't be unborn again. When one becomes a new creature in Christ, by the creative power of God, they can't return to the old. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't be false professors, apostates. False professors abound. We know that. We see that all through biblical history. We see that in life. We see that in this very discourse. That's exactly what is going on with these false disciples that are about to abandon Christ at the end of this chapter. But as Jesus has said over and over, they never were true believers. And that same phenomenon has been going on throughout church history. And John, the apostle, the same writer, he says in his epistle, having faced this in a church that he was over, to a, reference to a reference to a group of people who left that church. He said this in 1 John 2. He said, They went out from us, but they were not of us. Why? How do you know that, John? For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, why? That it might become plain that they were all not of us. See, those who truly belong to Christ will endure in Christ because they are kept by the power of Christ. By His grace, they continue to endure in the faith. As Peter put it in 1 Peter 5, we are, by God's power, being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. You see, God's power will not fail. He will lose none of His people. Rather, He will preserve them from the beginning of their faith to the outcome of their faith by His grace. By His grace, we will persevere in the faith if we are truly His. Christ will lose nothing of all that the Father has given Him from before the foundation of the world, but He will raise them up on the last day. That means... That if you are trusting in Christ now, glory is already yours. It's already yours. It's as good as done. That is why in the golden chain of redemption in Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks of our glorification in the past tense. Because it's already as good as done. Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. It's done. It's for that reason Paul ends that chapter. He goes on to say, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. His people will be raised up on the last day at His return. Our glorification with Him is sure. You can bank on it. It is settled. But the question still remains, 
how do I know that's me? How do I personally have assurance that I am among that group? How do I know I am His? How do I know I will be raised up on the last day? Well, let's look at this last section. The human requirement. Look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Praise God. See, Jesus is simply restating the same truths from, from a different perspective with a different emphasis. But notice, again, it's all rooted in the will of the Father. This is all God's design. The God who has designed salvation, has designed it to function by grace through faith. Through faith in the Son, in His Son, the Son that He sent. Faith in the One whom He has sent. Sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You see, the solas of the Reformation were not the Reformers' ideas. They were a summation of God's idea. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. That means, how do you know you will be raised up on the last day? The question to be asked is, are you trusting in Christ now? I'm not asking, are you a Christian? Do you call yourself a Christian? I'm not asking how faithful your church attendance is. I'm not asking how much time you spent in your Bible this week. I'm not asking if you, if you generally believe that God exists. The demons believe that. They even tremble. Now the question is, are you trusting in? Are you believing upon who Jesus is and what He has done? Is your faith not in your merit, but in His merit? Are you trusting in His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins? And if the answer to that question is yes, then you can rest. You can rest assured that you will be raised up on the last day. Because if not, then God is a liar. But we know that God is not a man that He should lie. Eternity is yours. Not because of you, but because of Him. If you believe in Him, if you trust in Him, you believe because you have been given by the Father to the Son. That is why you believe. Your trust in Christ is the evidence of God's work in your life, and it is the guarantee of your eternity. But for clarity... I want to nuance just one thing there. I am not at all talking about looking at the measure of the strength of one's faith. The strength of one's faith is not the measure of your assurance. So when we try to ground our assurance in something, we should not be trying to measure out the strength of our own faith. To do so would actually be to put your faith in faith. Our faith is not in the strength of our faith. Our faith is in the object of our faith. Your assurance is Him. Your assurance is in Christ. 
Your assurance is in the the truth of His person in His work. Christ has not, He will not, and He cannot fail to achieve everything that He set out to accomplish in His his coming and His dying and His resurrection. And that is what you are trusting in. Him and Him alone. This is why one of my favorite quotes of all time. You've heard me say it many times, and you'll hear me say it many more times, but it's a quote from Martin Luther. When I look to myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look to Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. If you're trusting in what He has done, how could you be lost? You can't. So don't don't look inward for your assurance. Yes, the believer must bear fruit, as Jesus will get into very clearly in John 15. There must be evidence of a transformation, but our ultimate assurance is not in fruit-bearing. It's in Christ. Look to Him. You can know. You can know that you are His. That if you were to pass from this life today, you would find yourself in the presence of your Savior with joy. Is one of his own. If you're believing upon Christ, trusting in Christ for your salvation, you need to know it's not holy nor humble to doubt that. It's not. God did not save a people so they can sit around the rest of their lives wondering about the outcome of their faith, doubting what he will do. Not at all. No, He has saved us so that we would know. We are to be able to speak with the same confidence as the Apostle Paul. To live is Christ and to die is gain. If I die today, it's gain. It's gain. I know where I'll be. Not because of me, but because of Him. Trust in Christ. Be assured of what God has done. Rest in it. It's not presumption to do so. But I want to finish with this. Some of you know that you can't say that because you know that you are not trusting. Christ is not precious to to you. Maybe you do not see the vileness of your own sin or the urgency of salvation, the quickly approaching realities of eternity. You need to know that all of this all of us, no matter, no matter who you are, will stand before Christ very soon. Eternity is coming. And you will stand before Him either as your judge or as your elder brother who has reconciled you to the Father. Yeah, but how do I know I'm one of the chosen ones? How do I know I'm one of the ones the Father has given to the Son? The Bible never tells you that you are to try to discern that. That is simply Jesus peeling back the curtain and showing what's going on behind the scenes in God's plan of redemption. But what the Bible tells you, what Jesus exhorts you, even in this passage, is to believe. Is to believe. That's it. To turn from your sin and to believe upon Christ. If you do that this day, then eternity is yours. Guaranteed. It is yours, and it can be yours today. You can know for certain, you can walk out of here on the very words and promises of Christ in this passage that you will be raised up on the last day.
if you will trust in him today. Because the invitation is open to you now. Do not harden your heart. Do not walk out of here not trusting in Christ. Avail yourself of what is open before you this day. Trust in Christ. I'm going to pray and we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together. Father, thank you that you you do not leave us wondering. We don't have to guess about our future. We know what's coming behind the veil of death. What a mercy. Thank you, Father, that you have sent your Son. Thank you that you have saved the people for yourself that you may display the riches of your grace and mercy for all of eternity. Thank you that by your grace and for reasons unknown to us, you have seen fit to include us among that redeemed people. Lord, we are eternally grateful for what you have done. Lord, I pray that if there's those here today who are not counted among your people, that you would open their eyes this morning, that you'd give them grace even now, that they would turn to Christ and they would have their lives transformed by the power of the gospel. Thank you, Father, for all of your grace and mercy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.